So this morning, turn if you would to Lamentations. Lamentations chapter 1. Tucked in there between Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Lamentations chapter 1. Hear the word of the Lord. How lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow has she become, she who was great among the nations. She who was a princess among the provinces has become a slave. She weeps bitterly in the night with tears on her cheeks. Among all her lovers she has none to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They have become her enemies. Judah has gone into exile because of affliction and hard servitude. She dwells now among the nations, but finds no resting place. Her pursuers have all overtaken her in the midst of her distress. The roads to Zion mourn, for none come to the festival. All her gates are desolate, her priests groan, her virgins have been afflicted, and she herself suffers bitterly. Her foes have become the head, her enemies prosper, because the Lord has afflicted her for the multitude of her transgressions. Her children have gone away captives before the foe. From the daughter of Zion all her majesty has departed. Her princes have become like deer that find no pasture. They fled without strength before the pursuer. Jerusalem remembers in the days of her affliction and wandering all the precious things that were hers from days of old. When her people fell into the hand of the foe and there was none to help her, her foes gloated over her. They mocked at her downfall. Jerusalem sinned grievously, therefore she became filthy. All who honored her despised her, for they have seen her nakedness. She herself groans and turns her face away. Her uncleanness was in her skirt. She took no thought of her future. Therefore her fall is terrible. She has no comforter. O Lord, behold my affliction, for the enemy has triumphed. The enemy has stretched out his hands over all her precious things, for she has seen the nations enter her sanctuary, those whom you forbade to enter your, your congregation. All her people groan as they search for bread. They trade their treasures for food to revive their strength. Look, O Lord, and see, for I am despised. Is it nothing to you, all you who pass by? Look and see if there is any sorrow like my sorrow, which was brought upon me which the Lord inflicted on the day of his fierce anger. From on high he sent fire, into my bones he made it descend. He spread a net for my feet, he turned me back, he has left me stunned, faint all the day long. My transgressions were bound into a yoke, by his hand they were fastened together. They were set upon my neck, he caused my strength to fail. The Lord gave me into the hands of those whom I cannot stand. The Lord rejected all my mighty men in my midst. He summoned an assembly against me to crush my young men. The Lord has trodden as in a winepress the virgin daughter of Jerusalem, sorry, the virgin daughter of Judah. For these things I weep, my eyes flow with tears, for a comforter is far from me, one to revive my spirit. My children are desolate, for the enemy has prevailed. Zion stretches out her hands, but there is none to comfort her. 
The Lord has commanded against Jacob that his neighbors should be his foes. Jerusalem has become a filthy thing among them. The Lord is in the right, for I have rebelled against his word. But hear, all you peoples, and see my suffering. My young women and my young men have gone into captivity. I called to my lovers, but they deceived me. My priests and elders perished in the city, while they sought food to revive their strength. Look, O Lord, for I am in distress. My stomach churns. My heart is wrong within, wrung within me, because I have been very rebellious. In the street the sword bereaves, in the house it is like death. They heard my groaning, yet there is no one to comfort me. All my enemies have heard of my trouble. They are glad that you have done it. You have brought the day you announced. Now let them be as I am. Let all their evil doing come before you, and deal with them as you have dealt with me, because of all my transgressions. For my groans are many, and my heart is faint. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Now, please turn, if you would, to Max, uh, to Matthew chapter 23. Matthew chapter 23. In this chapter, Jesus is talking to the crowds and to his disciples, and he has a lot to say about the religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees. Again, hear the word of the Lord. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to the disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So practice and observe whatever they tell you, but not what they do, for they preach but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. For they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues, and greetings in the marketplaces, and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And call no man on earth, call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves, nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, If anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, If anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes a gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, 
justice, and mercy, and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guide, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of innocent Abel to the blood of Zechariah the son of Barachiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stoned those who are sent to it, how often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Thus far, the reading of God's word. The sermon this morning will be on Lamentations chapter 1. So if you would turn back there, Lamentations chapter 1. In June this year, Bonnie and Ben and I returned to the U.S., and this is our, our fifth furlough, so we're used to moving between countries. But this time, before we moved back, and as we moved back to the U.S., we came back to a country that's torn by cultural and political factions, a country that's torn by bitterness, by disagreements, by violence, and by fear. And every time we come back, it's a bit uh, different, uh, the U.S. is changing, I'm afraid, moving farther away from the Lord. But there are many things going on, as you all know well, in this country. There are millions who are or will, were ill with COVID-19. And according to the statistics, almost 200,000 have died from that. As a result of the lockdown earlier this year, millions have lost their jobs and there's ongoing job losses. And there are families, maybe some of you, that are struggling and following the, the death of George Floyd in May, there have been protests in the streets of many American cities over our country's racism. And there have been some riots as well. But all of this that's going on, the coronavirus and the street activism are in dispute. And even among us, among evangelical and reformed believers, there are different strongly held beliefs and opinions about these issues. And 
it's honestly a, a struggle for many pastors and elders. Both before we left Taiwan and came here and after we've been here, I've talked to many pastors and many elders and many churches. And many of them have shared with me that they are working hard and sometimes struggling to care for their flocks in this difficult time without stirring the flames, without taking one side or the other, just caring for the people that God has given to them to be under shepherds of. And I can tell you with some assurance, because I have some understanding, that if you have any doubts, your pastor, Pastor Troutman, in your session are those who care for you deeply. So as you have your opinions and as you talk to each other and to them, keep that in mind. As we, as we all must, really. But all this situation, these difficulties, these challenges our country is facing, and they're, they're serious ones. Uh, these challenges have gotten me thinking over many months about these chaotic times that we're living in and how God instructs us to respond when our days are difficult. There was a pastor Bonnie and I had several years ago, and one of his sayings, he, he liked to say, it's hard to read the tea leaves. And he was referring to the old customs the gypsies used to have. Many uh, people in many different cultures have ways of trying to tell the future, right? And the gypsies, one of their ways of trying to tell the future was looking at tea leaves after they, the tea had been drained and trying to discern from that what was going to happen. But what, what he meant by this, he didn't believe in that custom, of course, but what he meant by this is in this time, in this era we live in, when God no longer gives special revelation of interpreting the, the providential history that he's brought us to, when God is no longer doing that, it's hard to know why. It's hard to know the reason for what is going on. Is it because of this? Is it because of that? And so in this, in this time, I, I've turned to the book of Lamentations, and for the last few months I've studied and meditated on it. And here's the context. Here's what's going on with, with Lamentations. Uh, it's, it starts out after a very serious event in the life of Israel. From January of 588 B.C. until July of 586 B.C., so month after month, in that time King Nebuchadnezzar had come to Jerusalem and he had besieged it. His army was surrounding it. There were thousands and thousands of soldiers. No one could get in or, or no one could go out. And by the end of that time, the famine, it, uh, the writer of Second Kings tells us that the famine in that city was so severe that there was no food for the people to eat. And at that point, the army, the army that was trapped in Jerusalem, they decided to try a desperate maneuver, and they tried to break out of the city uh, and, and sneak away. But they were caught by the Babylonians. And not only were the, was the army caught and captured, and many of them killed, but the Babylonians also captured King Zedekiah, the, the king of Jerusalem at that point. And his sons were killed while he was forced to watch. I, we can't even imagine that horror, right? That terror of having our children, uh, that done to our children, while we, we have to sit there and watch and can't do nothing. And then his eyes were gouged out even worse, and he was taken in chains to Babylon. And then Nebuzaradan, the, king, the head of King Nebuchadnezzar's imperial guard, King Nebu, uh, 
Nebuchadnezzar, he was the one who was doing most of the work for King Nebuchadnezzar, right? And he and his forces, they burned down the temple. They burned down Jerusalem's houses. They burned down, they tore down the major buildings. And then they broke down the city wall and they took the people into exile, into to Babylon and to the surrounding area there. Although it does say that he left behind some of the poorest people of the land to work the vineyards and the fields because he didn't want to, this new property of his right to go to waste. So the poorest of the people were there caring for things. And this, this was a, a troubled time, even more troubled than what we're living through. And, and there, were, there were lots of issues that the, the Jewish people had at this time. Not only had their lives been destroyed, not only were they, many of them killed, many of them taken captive, many of them taken hundreds of miles away to places they didn't know, to a culture and land they didn't know. But Jerusalem, they had been taught from the very beginning of the Jewish people, they had been taught Jerusalem was uh, God's dwelling place. If you remember in Deuteronomy, uh, the Lord had told Moses, who then went on and told the people, he told them, he said, the place the Lord your God will choose, put his name there for his dwelling. To that place you must go. That's what he told the Israelites in the wilderness. To the place the Lord your God will choose, to that place you must go. And that place was Jerusalem. Right? But what had happened? What had brought Jerusalem to this position, this, this circumstance? We all know King David, and King David was the one who conquered Jerusalem, right? And brought it into the control of God's people. And since King David had ruled over Jerusalem and over the people of Israel, 20 kings had ruled over, first over united Israel, and then over the divided kingdom of Judah. 20 kings. And of those 20, 11 of them were evil. The Bible, if you, if you grew up like I did in the church, you, and you grew up learning in Sunday school and from your parents the Bible stories, you'll remember the phrase from Chronicles and from Kings, that phrase that occurs so often describing the kings, saying they did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So of those 20 kings that had ruled over Jerusalem since David's time, 11 of them were evil. 11 of them had done evil in the eyes of the Lord. And among, among the worst of all of them was a king called Manasseh. And toward the end of the book of 2 Kings, the writer he describes why God was going to judge Judah. And he says this. He says this about the then future judgment of Jerusalem. He says, The Lord did not turn away from the heat of his fierce anger, which burned against Judah, because of all that Manasseh had done to arouse his anger. So the Lord said, I will remove Judah from my presence, as I removed Israel, and I will reject Jerusalem, the city I chose, and this temple. So then, if we, if we read that, and then we see what happens in Jeremiah and in Lamentations, then we, we ought to ask, right, well, what did Manasseh do? How was he so evil? What, what was bad about Manasseh? And what did the other kings do? Why did God describe them as doing evil in his sight? <clears throat> well, Manasseh became king a hundred years before Nebuchadnezzar's siege, a hundred and one or two years before Jerusalem's destruction. And Manasseh, once he became king, he, he's described as following the religious practices of the Canaanites. <clears throat> he, 
he rebuilt the high places, which were these places on the hills and mountains where the people worshipped the false gods. He erected altars to Baal. He made an Asherah pole. And he built altars to worship the stars. And, and even more than that, in the description in 2 Kings, it describes all the wickedness that, that Manasseh did. It, said, it says, he sacrificed his own son in the fire. He practiced divination. He sought omens and he consulted mediums. And not only that, it also says that he oppressed the weak. He shed innocent blood. So those in the country who did not have power, he oppressed them. He killed many of them, and he suppressed many others. But with all of that, his primary sin, right, his primary sin, what he had done wrong and why he was so evil was his idolatry, his unfaithfulness to God, and his aiding the people of Judah in that idolatry. So that's, that's what he did. That's why God said, oh, because of Manasseh, uh, Judah will be judged, Jerusalem will be judged. He had been unfaithful to the Lord and had taught and aided the people in that unfaithfulness. And, and, and that's what we need to remember as well. It wasn't just Manasseh, it wasn't just the, the other evil kings that were unfaithful. It was the people also who worshipped false gods. And if you read the book of Jeremiah, there are multiple times in Jeremiah where, where he chastises the people for their idolatry, for their worship of these demonic uh, uh, idols, these, these idols that were nothing in themselves, but that Satan was using to capture people's hearts. And he says to them uh, multiple times in, in the book, he says, you will face God's judgment for this. And it all begins, his his rehearsing of this history and the judgment that's waiting for them begins in chapter 1 of Jeremiah in verse 16. And there he speaks for the Lord, and this is what he says, Jeremiah 1, 16. You can turn there if you want. But he says this, he says, I will pronounce my judgments on my people, again speaking for the Lord, I will pronounce my judgments on my people because of their wickedness in forsaking me, in burning incense to other gods, and in worshiping what their hands have made. So there it is, idolatry, plain and clear, right? And as we find out, if you read those books in the Old Testament, both the prophetic books and the historical books, you will see or be reminded that God sent prophets to the people, warning them to repent, but they refused to listen. In 2 Chronicles chapter 36, 2 Chronicles 36 verses 15 and 16, says this, The Lord God of their ancestors continually warned them, that is, warned the people of Judah, through his messengers, for he felt compassion for his people and his dwelling place. But they mocked God's messengers, despised his warnings, and ridiculed his prophets. Finally, the Lord got very angry at his people, and there was no one who could prevent his judgment. But there was more than that. Just like there was more than idolatry in Manasseh's life, there was more than idolatry in the lives of the people. Uh, they didn't just worship other gods. I went through the book of Jeremiah recently and I, um, I compiled a list of the sins that God uh, chastises them for. And it's, it's a lengthy list. Here, here are just some of the things that they had done. They had laborers, working class people who were working in the fields and doing other work and they weren't paying them. They were oppressing foreigners, oppressing orphans, oppressing widows. 
They were judging unfairly. They were stealing. They were committing adultery, not being faithful to their wives and their husbands. They were committing perjury. And they were re-imprisoning their Hebrew slaves. You remember God had told the Israelites to set free their Jewish slaves after six years? Well, the people in this era, this time, they were not setting them free. Or if they were, they were just immediately re-imprisoning them, re-enslaving them. And this is, this is something we need to keep in mind, I think. It's important to remember always, because this is a teaching of Scripture, that disobedience to the first table of the law and the, uh, and the second table of the law are always connected. If you worship other gods, you'll also un- act unlovingly toward your family and your neighbors. And conversely, if you treat your family and your neighbors harshly, you'll soon start worshiping false gods. John sums this up in the book of 1 John when he says, Anyone who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Right? They're always, the, the first table law and the second table, they're always meshed together. If we mess up on one, if we're unfaithful in one, we'll be unfaithful in the other. That's how we are. That's how our sin compounds itself. So now, now we come to Lamentations. And Lamentations, this book was the prophet Jeremiah's reaction to Jerusalem's destruction. It's a lament. Like, yeah, of course it's a lament, right? Lamentations. But it's a lament. It's a cry of pain and grief to the Lord. It's, look God, do you see what's happened? Do you see our misery? Lord, have you left us? Why have you allowed this? Where are you? That's the gist of Lamentations. Lord, look at us. Lord, intervene. Lord, why haven't you done anything yet? Why have you allowed this? And there, there are five chapters in the book. And they, they, they differ quite a bit in their length, in their style, in their content. They, they range from third-person reports of Jerusalem's situation, more like a, a news article saying, this is what's happening to Jerusalem, right? That's, that's some of the, the chapters in the book. Others describe the siege when Nebuchadnezzar and Nebuchadnezzar and their army were around Jerusalem. Some of the chapters describe that trauma and, and that dramatic situation. Some of them describe Jeremiah's own anguish, his own heartbreak at what's happening to his people. And, and some of them are the community, the people of Judah together speaking to God and saying, remember, Lord, what has happened to us? Look, look, Lord, look at us. And here's the dilemma, and here's why they call, they're calling out to him, whether it's Jeremiah or whether it's the people of Judah. They call out to him because they know, as we know, that Jerusalem is his daughter. The city is his dwelling place. The Lord says that other places. He says it here in Lamentations as well. Jerusalem is my dwelling place. And, and again, from Deuteronomy, the Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. So all that is going through their mind. All that is on their hearts. Just as we are his dwelling place, just as we are as the church his daughter, just as we are his treasured possession. Because the Old Testament people of God and the New Testament are the same. We are one people, right? And so the call, Jeremiah's lament is, when will you fulfill the obligations that are implied by this relationship, Lord? How long will you leave us in our misery? When will you restore us to normalcy, to prosperity, to peace? 
Will you even do that? When will you intervene? And, and chapter 1. Chapter 1 of Jeremiah, like many of the chapters, is 22 verses. And it's divided into two parts. First 11 verses, the second 11 verses. And in the first 11 verses of, the, of chapter 1 of, of Lamentations, they, they describe Jeremiah, they describe Zion as if she were a widow. All the troubles that she's experienced, all that she's gone through just in the last several months. And she reminds me of a lady that we knew when we lived in China. Uh, not exactly the same, but we knew this lady in China who, when we met her, her husband had just died. And she had just found out one of her two young, young daughters had the same genetic heart disease that her husband had. And she would also be in serious health, serious danger of dying if she didn't get surgery. And this lady had lost one hand in a childhood accident. So she was among the poorest of the poor. Right? So that's the sort of situation. Everything you can possibly imagine has gone against Jerusalem. Just like everything you could possibly imagine had happened to this lady that Bonnie and I knew. And the chapter, chapter 1 of Lamentations, starts with a Hebrew word that some of your translations translate as alas. The word's not in many English translations, but this word translated as alas is a word that was the Jews used at the beginning of a funeral lament. That's how bad it was for Jerusalem and for Judah. This is like a funeral lament almost. So that's the first 11 verses. It's a description of Jerusalem saying she's like a widow who's lost everything. The second 11 verses are in the first person. It's, it's as if the city of Jerusalem is speaking. And she says things like, is any suffering like my suffering that was inflicted upon me? So that's the second 11 verses. That's how it goes. First one is more a report. The second one is a personal anguish of the city itself, saying this is what's happened. But in, in both sections, in, in both sections of uh, Lamentations, uh, Jeremiah summarizes Jerusalem's situation similarly. He highlights the same awful troubles. And, and I'll list some of them for you. In both sections of, of chapter 1, there's talk about the nations that were once friendly to Judah having become her enemies, and Babylon now rules over her. So the nations that were once friendly are her enemies, and Babylon is a ruler. Another is that the people are taken into exile and slavery. That's brought up in both sections of the chapter. The people are taken into exile. The people are now slaves. An another, another commonality in both sections of the chapter, there is grief and there is mourning and groaning. Verse 4 says, The roads to Zion mourn, for no one comes to her appointed festivals. Her priests groan, her young women grieve, and she is in bitter anguish. And verse 16, the second half of the chapter, this is why I weep and my eyes overflow with tears. There's more. The city, in, in both sections of the chapter, is described as deserted, destroyed, desolate. How deserted lies the city, once so full of people. He made me desolate, faint, all the day long. Those are verses 1 and 13. And Jerusalem and the people in her are despised and they're mocked. 
Again, that's in both sections of the chapter. Jerusalem and her people are despised by the people around them. They're mocked by the people around them. They're, the enemies are laughing at them, laughing at their situation, and they're in distress. And I think this is the worst of all, the commonality between the first half and the second half. The worst of all is there's no one to comfort her. And I'll, I'll read those verses for you. Verse 9 of chapter 1. Her fall was astounding. There was none to comfort her. Verse 16, this is why I weep. I read a bit of this before. This is why I weep and my eyes overflow with tears. No one is near to comfort me. No one to restore my spirit. There's no one to comfort her. So, so whether it's the first half where Jeremiah writes, Jerusalem is like this and like this and like this, or whether it's the second half where it says, I, Zion, I, Jerusalem, am like this and this and this. The lists are almost identical. They're descriptions of utter misery, utter despair, almost. Right? And so this is where Jerusalem is sitting. And in the New Testament, and we read it this morning, in the New Testament, in Matthew, Jesus describes a similar scenario. Matthew chapter 23, verses 37 and 38. That's where he said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you. How often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. And you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. Of course, this was a prophecy of Jerusalem's destruction by the Romans in 70 AD. And then, too, the city would be left alone, would be left desolate, would be left empty. And there, too, the reason was the Jews' idolatry. In this case, though, in, in, in Jesus, just past Jesus' time on earth, what was the problem? The Jews had refused to recognize Jesus as the Son of God, right? As the only mediator between God and man. So they were also guilty of idolatry, worshiping God falsely, worshiping God not through the mediator that he had provided. And they're also judged, though, and I think this is important, they're also judged for killing the prophets, just as their fathers had done in Jeremiah's day. In Jeremiah's day, they'd killed the messengers God had sent to them, and Jesus said, you killed the prophets, and your house will be left to you desolate. And this not killing the prophets so much, but this, idolatry is our primary temptation as the people of God. We claim and we profess to follow him and his son Jesus, but how often do you and I, how often do we trust other gods to provide for our daily bread and protect us from our enemies? Or we trust other gods, whether it's money, whether it's prestige, whether it's fame, whether it's uh, this person or that person, we trust other gods to satisfy ourselves, our own sinful desires. And that's our primary temptation, to walk away from the Lord and trust some other idol that we set up in his place. And God, for us too, sends his messengers to urge us to repent, to turn from these false gods. And do we, do we listen? Do we listen? And he still, he still disciplines his people and what I'm not saying, I'm not saying America's current troubles, which are many and great, are his judgment on the country or his disciplining of American Christians. Again, remember, it's hard to read the tea leaves. God doesn't give us special direct revelation about the why behind the troubles of this 
of this hard year. But what, what should our response be? Our response ought to be to examine our hearts, right? To turn from our idols back to God. He's the only one we should worship. He's the only one we should look to for salvation, for help and deliverance. There, there are uh, other items in these two sections of, of Lamentations 1 that I, that I want to bring out. And uh, one of those is uh, to notice the witnesses that, that, that Jeremiah calls to and that the city calls to in these sections. In the first half of the chapter, Jerusalem uh, calls on God to notice what she has gone through. So God is the one that, that's supposed to take notice in the first half of the chapter. In verse 9, uh, Lamentations 1, verse 9, Look, Lord, on my affliction, for the enemy has triumphed. And verse 11, Look, Lord, and consider, for I am despised. This is biblical lament. This is crying out to the Lord in pain and in grief. It's, same, it's the same as in the Psalms of Lament, the many Psalms where the psalmist or the sons of Korah or others call out to the Lord and say, look, Lord, what's happened to me? And it's, I, I want to assure you that it's okay, it's right, it's godly to do this. When we are in trouble, we are to call out to the Lord. You don't need the reminder, but the Lord loves us and our Savior is compassionate. I looked at Matthew this week, and in Matthew alone, four times we're told that Jesus had compassion on the crowds. And if he has compassion on the crowds of the general people who are listening to him, how much more compassion does he have on us, his sons and daughters, right? He wants to hear from us when we're suffering. He wants to hear from us when we're in need, as Jerusalem cried out to him in Lamentations 1. In the second half of the chapter, uh, Jerusalem now is speaking, right? As you remember, as I've said, Jerusalem is speaking in the second half. And Jerusalem turns its attention to the people, the surrounding nations. And they want the surrounding nations to witness what's happened to them. Verse 12 says this, Is it nothing to you, all who pass by? Look around and see. And what is this? What's the purpose of this look around and see? It's not, it's not the rubbernecking that happens at a traffic accident. It's not like, oh, those poor people. I'm sure glad I'm not them, right? It's not watching a horror movie for the thrills of watching a horror movie. No, it's, it's not that. Jerusalem isn't saying, hey, look at us because we're blurring, bloody and gory and all the rest and we're suffering. No, no, Jerusalem... This is what Jerusalem is doing. This is what Jeremiah is doing as he speaks for Jerusalem. He's confessing that God had allowed the destruction of the city. In fact, he has caused it. He's judged her and he's judged the whole kingdom of Judah, the divided kingdom of Judah. And this is just and this is right. Verse 14. Verse 14. My transgressions were bound into a yoke. By his hand they were fastened together. They were set upon my neck. He caused my strength to fail. The Lord gave me into the hands of those whom I cannot withstand. The important part is, my transgressions were bounded to a yoke by his hand. Right? And verse 18, The Lord is in the right, for I have rebelled against his word. So, Jeremiah is confessing that 
the Lord, what the Lord has done to them is right. They deserve his disciplining hand because they have strayed from him. So why then, uh, why then does Jerusalem, does Jeremiah speaking for Jerusalem in the second half of the chapter, why does he call the nations to notice what's happening? Well, these verses, verse 12 on, are a testimony to God's justice, yes, but they're also a warning to these other nations, these other peoples. They're a warning. God is righteous. God is holy. He'll judge any nation that doesn't worship him. And what, what Jeremiah is saying in the second half of the chapter is, this could happen to you too, because you too are not worshiping the Lord as you ought. So that's what's going on. He's saying, notice not because it's like a traffic accident, no, notice because this too could happen to you. You too are unfaithful to the Lord. And then, then in the last three verses, verses 20 through 22, Jerusalem speaks to the Lord again. They turn from the nations around them and they turn to the Lord and, and talk to him again. Uh, verse 20, Look, O Lord, for I am in distress. Or as another translation says, the NIV says, See how distressed I am, Lord. But now... Instead of, instead of just saying, notice what's happening to me, to the Lord. Now Jerusalem goes on and she prays for the Lord to judge her enemies for their sins as he has judged her. Remember he had called them to witness what had happened to her. And now she says, Lord, my enemies have, have done wrong. My enemies are, are living as rebels against you as well. Even in, as they have destroyed us. So judge them. Verses, the end of verse 21 through uh, the middle of verse 22 say this. You have brought the day you announced. Now let them be as I am. Let all their evil doing come before you and deal with them as you have dealt with me because of all my transgressions. See, Lord, this is what's happened to us. Now they have harmed us. So please, please judge them in your righteousness. Isaiah and Jeremiah, they had prophesied that God would judge Babylon. Uh, you, can, you can look up those prophecies. Isaiah chapter 13 is one, Jeremiah chapter 46, another passage. They had said God will judge Babylon. And he had used Nebuchadnezzar, right? He had used the Babylonian army to discipline Jerusalem. But the Babylonians were proud. They were ruthless. They didn't besiege Jerusalem for the Lord's glory. They weren't doing it for the Lord. They had their own evil motive. Right, And he would deal justly with them. In Jeremiah chapter 46, the Lord promised he would completely destroy all the nations where he had scattered his people. And so here in Lamentations 1, Jerusalem pleads with the Lord to do what he had promised. And this is the same cry as God's people throughout all history when they or we are attacked by God's enemies. And a classic passage that comes to mind is Revelation chapter 6, verse 10. Revelation 6, 10, where it's the martyrs who have been killed for their testimony uh, to the Lord. When they cry out from, uh, to the Lord and they say, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Lord, do what you promised. Defeat our enemies and yours. And so when we, as God's people, when we're in distress, we ought to cry out to him. 
we ought to cry out to him to notice. And, and I want to be clear that he always does notice, right? Of course he notices. He knows all things. He already knows what we're going through. But still, we're instructed. We're taught by example and by explicit command to call out to him. To call out to him to notice and intervene. To make right what is broken. To make right what is hurting. To make right what is wrong. And we can do this boldly, and we can do this with confidence, because we're his dwelling place. We are his people. We are his daughter. He has made us his, and we belong to him. He intends our good, and he will bring it about. The writer of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 12, says this. He says, the Lord disciplines the ones he loves. And we, we don't know whether a particular trial is the Lord's discipline, but if we're living in sin, as Judah and its kings were, we need to confess our sins. Again, Lamentations chapter 1, this time verse 18. Jerusalem says, I rebelled against his command. There's the confession. Verse 20, I have been most rebellious. Not only that, but verse 14. Not only do we confess, but we confess that God is right in putting trials into our lives to turn us back to him. Verse 14, which I think I've already mentioned two or three times, but I think it's key in the, in the chapter. My sins have been bound into a yoke. By his hands they were woven together. Right? We confess that the Lord did this, and it, and it was right. The Lord is righteous, verse 18 of Lamentations 1. Now, Jerusalem's destruction in 586 B.C., and there, again, their destruction, its destruction in 70 A.D., are redemptive historical events in Israel's own history, they're part of God's history for Israel, which we are promised by Paul in Romans, will result in a final turning of all Israel from idolatry to trust in Jesus as Lord. Jesus, who atoned for the sins of a great multitude that no one could possibly count. And part of the reason for the turning will be the lesson that the Jews learned through God's disciplining them in this time of Babylonian exile. One thing that happened to, to Israel, to Judah, in this time when they were exiled by Babylon, yes, uh, later on they did not look at Jesus as the one mediator between God and man, but through this time in Babylon, and as a result, they stopped worshiping false gods. They no longer had a problem with worshiping in the temples of gods who were not the true God. So that was part of God's hand in training and disciplining them. The idols of the of them, of the idols of the people of Jerusalem at that time were man-made statues. They were statues of stone or wood or gold. They were the false demonic gods of the surrounding nations. And the Jews turned to them for pleasure. They turned to them for good harvest for their daily bread. They turned to them for protection from disaster and national protection, protection of the kingdom. They said to these false gods to Baal and whatnot, protect us from our enemies. And even they turned to them for forgiveness of sins. None of that was effective. None of that was right. But that's what they did. And as Americans and as believers in the United States, what are our idols? What are our false gods? Uh, is it greed? Is it pride? Is it uh, the false worship of people we think can pull the U.S. out of our troubles? And yes, we need godly leaders. But no godly leader in the U.S. is our Messiah whatever you think of politics. Uh, we need to pray and work for right leaders, but 
as, as the Bible says so often, do not put your trust in princes and human beings who cannot save. They can do us good. They can be benefactors to the people, but they cannot be the Messiah. Is that our sin, looking to politicians to do what only the Lord can do? Too often, God is only an addition to our shelf of gods. As Jesus often is in Taiwan, many people we have met in Taiwan have, uh, I can think of one lady in particular, we, we've known for a number of years, we were talking with her a couple of years ago and she said to us, yeah, this lady at the international school is encouraging me to pray to Jesus. So we asked her, do you pray to Jesus? She said, yeah, I, sometimes I pray to him like I pray to the other gods. So is God only an addition for us as he often is in Taiwan, instead of our only king, our only messiah, our only shepherd. The pronouns in Lamentations are I, me, and my, but they represent Jerusalem speaking, the people of God. And we too, as God's people, ought to repent corporately. We share our idolatries too often, don't we? And we need to confess them and repent of them as a community, a body. Forgive us our debts is a prayer we pray, not forgive us my debts. So often we're caught up with each other, not only in our good habits, our following after the Lord, but in our idolatries. And we can and should pray, even in this time, for God to be merciful, as the people of Jerusalem do in chapter 5 of Lamentations. But we also should pray for him to be just, to enact justice on the instruments, the people he has used to discipline us. Right? If... We say, Lord, you have used them to discipline us, but they too are not following you. They are hurting your people. We need and deserve the Lord's discipline. But those who discipline us have harmed us. And we ought to remember that we are the recipients of the Lord's great love. It's right for him to judge them and for us to call on him to do this, not in anger or enmity, but because God is just and because he's told us he'll defeat all his and our enemies. Right? Jesus Christ will reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. God often weaves yokes for us. He disciplines us to turn back to him. But he does this. We are his because someone else was left desolate by him. On the cross, Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he was left desolate. He was forsaken by God for the forgiveness of our sins to purchase our freedom from sin and to spare us the judgment we deserve. Let's pray. Lord God, we do pray briefly this morning, but sincerely, you know the trouble that our country is in, you know the trouble that many of us are in in these, in these very troubled days, Lord, and many of our hearts are stirred this way and that way, and we look to you for help and hope, and you always are our foundation you are our bedrock you are our cornerstone you are our savior lord we confess that this morning and once again we say we need your help both as a country and as believers and as the orthodox presbyterian church and as this congregation at mid cities lord we need your help and in our individual families as well lord we need your help to deliver us from evil to sustain us in these hard days to Give us your joy again to remind us that you, you bring us through hard times to fasten our hearts more tightly to you so that we'll follow after you more faithfully. Remind us of this, Lord, as we go about our days. Help us to have a heart for those around us, a heart for our country, which is hurting so badly, a heart for each other, Lord, 
and hearts of compassion and mercy, Lord, because we would not stand except for your mercy and grace. So teach us to be merciful and gracious to others. This we pray, Lord, in the name of our great and gracious Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.